0: Um, I'm just going to ask you to continue in Ephesians. I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, verse 11. Where Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at at that time, You were separate from Christ, exiled from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Let's just come and pray. Again, Father, we just want to thank you for all that you have for us in your word, for all that you want to teach us. And Lord, we thank you that as we hear your word, that we join with so many generations through history who have listened to this same word. And through this word you've spoken to them. Lord, speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, right throughout the, the history of mankind, one of man's main obsessions, I suppose, has been the pursuit of a lasting peace. In fact, you might call me naive, and I probably am, but I still believe in a way that the main reason for the war in Iraq and later in Afghanistan and the continuing ongoing conflict and that Troubled region, despite all the the speculation about what we were told and what we weren't told, and you know that the real motive was actually securing oil supplies long term, etc. Yeah, I still believe that from maybe a Western perspective, that the main driver behind this, and we might feel it was misconceived, but was to try and bring a degree of stability to one. Of the places that for many centuries has been among the most conflict ridden areas of our planet. And all of that to bring just that little bit closer, that dream that we have of a real and lasting peace on earth. Well, let me be something now that I quite enjoy being. A killjoy. Because that's a dream that has led to countless broken hearts during our human history. And let me just share with you a statistic, a quote, and a a spiritual truth that all relate to this. The statistic I found in a book by Warren Wearsby, and that is that from 1500, 1500 BC to AD 850, there were 7,500 eternal covenants agreed upon between various nations. None of them lasted more than two years. The quote, peace in our time, peace with honour. And many of us know who said that, don't we? The British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, on his return from Germany in September 1938, And he thought that he changed Hitler's mind. And he thought that the unspeakable horror of another world war had been averted. And we know how well that worked out, don't we? We do, because one year later, Hitler invaded Poland. And on September the 3rd, 1939, Britain declared war on Germany. And so began the carnage of World War II. Okay then, what's the the spiritual truth? The spiritual truth that I believe this quote and that statistic illustrate. Quite simply, it's that, I don't know who that is out there, by the way. Quite simply, it is that until we ourselves are at peace, until we find peace within, spiritual peace, fundamentally peace with God, until we know that peace, we will never know peace with our fellow man. And we'll never know peace in our relationships at all sorts of various levels. In life, and that's the truth that the passage that we're looking at tonight focuses in on. For in the previous 10 verses of chapter 2, the main emphasis there was man's separation, man's alienation from God because of our sin, and then God's remedy for this in Jesus. In these verses, though, tonight. Although this, this still finds something of a mention, verse 16 talks of God's purpose to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Yet here, the emphasis shifts to look at the kind of problems in human relationships that this basic separation from God within then leads to. And how God has dealt with this also, how he's dealt with this too in Jesus Christ. But in this passage, because of of when and who this was written to, Paul approaches all of this in terms of the relationship, or rather previous lack of relationship, between Jews and Gentiles. And that can maybe for some of us make all this seem a bit remote. Because you see, situated where we are at now, historically, culturally, etc., well, problems between Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, well, they're not really a big thing for us, are they, in terms of our day-to-day life here in Hamilton, around. But you know, we do still have problems, don't we? We do. Problems with people we work with, problems with neighbours we live beside, problems with friends, problems with people out there. And in addition to all that, in our world, there's no shortage of tension and even violence caused by racial, religious, social, economic division, and we could add and go on and on. So what I want to suggest, and what I'm going to go on and try to demonstrate, is that all of these problems in human relationships arise out of the same basic root of a lack of or faults in our relationship with God. So don't let the details here put you off, because as I I believe you'll soon see, The underlying problem here is very much, very much applicable to us. Anyway, let's let's begin by looking at what we once were outside of Jesus. What we once were, and that is separated from God and therefore separated from one another. Now, as Paul's concern was about how this worked its way out in the the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, then, then let me just share with you some comments from William Bartley, that I think helped to give something, a wee bit of an insight into just how hostile this relationship actually was. And this is what he says. He says the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, the Jew, the Jews said, the, sorry, the Jews said that the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loved only Israel out of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would be, it was said, simply to be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. kind of makes today's national rivalries and football rivalries seem a bit warm and friendly by comparison. But it's actually the ultimate monument, if you like, to this division that's, that's touched on by Paul here in verse 14 where he talks of the fact that he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what I was referring to is that in the great temple at Jerusalem, the court of the Jews and the inner sanctuary, that these were separated from the court of the Gentiles by a descent of 19 steps and also by a massive wall. And if this wasn't off putting and off having to crane your necks just to even see the temple, then how about this sign that was displayed there on that wall? No foreigner may enter the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So they hadn't quite grasped then the concept of God's people being a warm and welcoming worshiping community. But this was the terrible extent of the division between Jew and Gentile. And what made that even more terrible was that this was a division based on a perverse, misunderstanding, distortion of God's word and truth, fueled as is. Usually, almost always the case, by that root of sin, by by our human pride. Because you see, the truth is that God had called the Jews to be his people. And the truth is that he had shared his love with them in a special way. Plus, he had expressed his will for them to live holy lives, lives that are separate from sin, and he gave them the law to help that to happen. Tragically, though, So much of this, the Jews forgot or chose to ignore. And what they focused on, what was their main emphasis, was that they were special to God. That was where their their hearing started and ended. And so puffed up with pride, they then looked with disgust on everyone else. But how, how different this was, how very different, from God's intention. His intention for the Jews that spelled out for us by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49:6, He says there, I will also make you, that is Israel, my people, I will make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see, it, it was God's purpose for Israel then that by their life, that, that by their light, by being God's separate people, that by their holiness, that they should draw the nations to the God who made them different, that they should show them then his love. Instead, by their attitude, by the cold and exclusive way they lived out the law, they turned all of this, the whole thing, on its head and they actually drove the nations away from God. So this division then was caused because God's people were actually out of touch, though they didn't know it, out of relationship with God. With the result being that the Gentiles, the vast population, majority of the population, before the coming of Jesus, they were left helpless. They were left in the terrible situation that's outlined there for us in verse 12. Remember, Paul says, that at that time, You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So the Gentiles then, and this is true for us, for everyone before we come to Jesus, they were without Christ. That is, they were without any prospect of a relationship with the Christ, the Messiah. And so with no real hope seemingly, spiritual rescue. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of hope. That is, they were outside of the kind of relationship that even Israel had with God. That is a people who are living under his rule and benefiting from his care and his promises. And finally, they were without hope and without God in the world. They were hopeless. Because although God had a hope planned for them in Jesus, they were ignorant of it. They were hopeless. And hopelessness really was the the defining quality of society in the ancient world before Jesus Christ, as it is today in our world, that has rejected God and the hope he brings. And they were, finally, they were without God. Without God, not that there were any lack of God's, in that ancient world, but they had no knowledge, no relationship with the true, the living God. And you know, for this, the Gentiles, everyone, are in part culpable. They just can't blame the Jews for all of this. Because you see, as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 1, there is evidence around to be seen in abundance in this created world around us. Evidence that points to God. So the Jews take the blame for failing in their responsibility to point the way. But that doesn't let anyone off the hook. All around us, there is evidence of God's handiwork. And as people choose to ignore this, as people choose to misinterpret it, as people try to distort evidence to avoid it, this leaves us standing without excuse and without God. That was the tragic situation of the Gentiles, and that's the tragic situation of anybody today who doesn't have a living faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the Jews didn't do anything. They didn't want to do anything about this. In fact, they were so out of touch with the heartbeat of God that they were actually unable. They couldn't see, spiritually blind. So that is what we once were outside of Jesus. Separated. Separated from God. Separated from his life. Separated from his love. Separated from any hope because of our sin and pride. And because of that separated from one another. Because we're broken inside unable to live at peace unable to live in harmony with one another. And in our human weakness and frailty, there's absolutely nothing we can do about this. But let's move on to look at what God has done. What God has done through Jesus, and that is reconciliation. And you see, that's what God does. He reconciles us. First, he reconciles us to himself, and that then gives us the resources we need to be able to be reconciled and to live in relationship with one another. And he does this. By dealing with that sin that separates us from a holy God. As verse 13 tells us. But now in Jesus Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And verse 16 takes it on and develops it a stage further when it talks of God's desire in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. You see, that's the way God has dealt with the sin in verse 17 of those who are far away, the Gentiles. And that's the way he's dealt with the sin of those who were near, the Jews. He's done it by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross of Christ, there he, the perfect sinless one, he gave himself to pay the price of that sin. He gave himself to deal with that sin, to remove that barrier. And all of this becomes ours, verse 13, it becomes ours in Christ Jesus. This becomes ours as we take it to ourselves and unite ourselves, make ourselves one with Jesus Christ through faith. But most of us, I'm sure, know all that, don't we? But what we sometimes, I think, lose sight of are the implications that this should then have for our relationships with one another. But here Paul makes clear how Jesus, by dealing with that sin that once separated us from God, how he's also dealt with the division between Jew and Gentile. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with all its commandments and regulations. Now you see, what, what Paul's getting at here, is how the the Old Testament law, with all its regulations about ritual and sacrifice and diet and so many other things, the observance of which was so precious to the Jews and that lay at the heart of their division from the Gentiles who were not law keepers, how all this was made obsolete by Jesus, by his death on that cross, that which was the sacrifice, the ritual Above all others, that ended all others. So now you see, only the principles that underlie the wider law, and only the moral law, that is the commandments which reflect the ten commandments which reflect God's holy character, only these actually continue to have relevance. For as Jesus said in, in Matthew 5:12, he said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus came really to get to the heart of these laws. He came to show us what these laws really actually mean and then to show us how they can be applied and how they then can be lived out to the limit. So do you see then that, that in Jesus, and in his death on the cross, God there dealt not only with the the sin that causes division between him and us, but he also dealt with the way that this then impacts on and causes division in our human relationships. But you might want to say here, though, but but wait a minute, God only dealt here with that which caused division at that time between Jew and Gentile. But, But surely this isn't relevant for us today. But I want to say that is so not the case. No, rather, what we have here is a particular example of a great underlying continuing principle. And that is that when we come in faith to God through Jesus Christ, what God then does inside us, spiritually, within us, that obliterates any divisions there are between us. And Paul makes this you're crystal clear elsewhere in the New Testament, most notably in the famous verse in, Gal- in Galatians, Galatians 3:23, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And we're going to now look at this in a little bit more detail. What that means as we finish now by looking at what we've now become in Jesus Christ, and that is united. That what we now have together in Jesus, that means that every other division between men is dealt with and seen as comparatively meaningless. For verse, verse 16 here tells us, that this was God's purpose, to create one new man out of the two. And then a little bit later, Paul goes on to really paint a kind of picture of of what all of this means in our experience. Verse 19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone." In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him you too are being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You know what a beautiful picture this is. That once as Gentiles we were excluded from God's kingdom. Once we were without God and without hope. But now... We're not only citizens in God's kingdom, we are members of his family, we're part of his household. That's the quality of relationship we've been brought into through Jesus. But as God's new and God's united people, we then need a new temple to worship in. And what a familiar idea, concept that would be to the Ephesians who received this letter and to the first century Jews. For the Jews, they had their their great temple in Jerusalem. That temple where God had once dwelt in the inner sanctuary until their repeated sin led him to remove his glory. And in Ephesus, where this letter was first written to, there was one of the seven wonders there of the ancient world. The great temple of Artemis, dedicated to the goddess Diana. A temple that in size actually dwarfed the Parthenon in Athens. A temple who is estimated could hold 50,000 people. And yet, you know, the reality was that neither of these temples really knew anything of the presence of the living God. Imagine then the surprise for these people who've been brought up in in this kind of context to then hear Paul's words here where he says, you are now God's temple. And more than that, in you, by his spirit, the living God now dwells because God lives no more in temples, in special places. God now lives in a special people, in their hearts. It's incredible, isn't it? that people who once had been divided by walls of their own making are now to be formed by God as he works within them, in their lives, by his Spirit, to be formed by God together into the spiritual walls of his new temple, the worship center, if you like, of the living God. That's a tremendous picture of what God does with his people, united in Christ. But there's one or two important points here connected to this that, that I do think we, we need to take note of. And that is, first, we can only be truly united. And we can only grow together. First of all, verse 20, as the apostles and prophets are our foundation stone. That is, as our lives and our life together is based on the Word of God given by the apostles and prophets. And also, as Christ Jesus is our cornerstone, as Jesus and our faith in Jesus is the one that holds everything else in place, that as Jesus, the Lordship, the supremacy of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the majesty and glory of Jesus, as Jesus, in all that he is, is continually kept at the center, at the heart of our lives. But that though is what we have become in Jesus, united. The challenge is, though, although this is what God has done for us, although this is ours, this is ours, are we now living in the reality of it? Are we living it? Because verse 17 here tells us that Jesus preached peace to you who are far away in peace, to those who were near. But, you know, the tragedy of preaching is that not everybody responds in the way they should to the message they hear. And not everybody puts into practice what they hear. So, I don't know, maybe tonight you're here and you're a Christian who's never really thought about, never really thought through the way Jesus has actually dealt with the differences between you and others. You've never really thought it through in the way you should, that if spiritually and eternally, that if you have Jesus Christ in common with someone else, then that matters far more than any little differences you might have in the here and now. Maybe you've never really grasped before, in addition, how important unity is for your spiritual life and for the life of the church. Maybe you've never realized that in Jesus, there is the power and the love and the grace, the mercy to deal with all those different differences between us that inevitably occur in life. Or maybe you have realized all this, you're well aware of it, but you've refused to give into it. You've refused to yield to it. You've refused to obey. You've refused to do what God calls you to do. And instead of that, you've let pride and anger and bitterness and an unforgiving spirit rule over your life. You've held grudges and you've held them tight. I want to say I beg you, make changes now. Repent of this. Because I tell you, if you don't, that bitterness, those grievances, those grudges that you're maybe cherishing, they will eat you up on the inside. They will twist you and distort your life. They will devour and destroy you. And in the process, damage the life of the fellowship of God's people. God has reconciled us. God has united us as a people. He has made us one in Jesus Christ. That is a spiritual fact. Let's then, by obedience, lay hold of what God has done. Let's live out that reality. Let's just pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for just everything you give us in Jesus. And you don't call us simply to obey you. You don't call us to live a life that's impossible to live. You never do that. You give us all that we need. You can enable us to live as a united people. You can deal with any anger or bitterness that's in our heart. You can take down any dividing wall that we've raised up. You're able to do it all. But Father, we've got to have that desire. We've got to bring it to you. We've got to lay it before you. We've got to repent of it. We've got to turn from it. Father, help us tonight to find the wholeness, the healing that can only be found in Jesus. In his name we pray this now. Amen.